Hello everyone, this is your host Oxford. I'm making my triumphant return after taking a couple of episodes off. Um, Jess, uh, congratulations, you did a great job hosting the last one. And Teen, who is in China right now, uh, hosted the one before, but I am back. And today joining us, we have a couple of newcomers, uh, Diana and Ken. You guys want to introduce yourselves? Hi, my name is Diana. Uh, I'm a writer and comedian in Boston, Massachusetts. Great to have you. I'm Ken. Uh, I'm uh, I work in the Bay Area as a materials engineer. Uh, yeah, great to have you too, Ken. And w- why don't you tell everyone how you ended up here? I mean, on this podcast. Sure. Um, well, basically, I've just kind of been looking for um, Asian American content on any platform, really. And this was, I mean, Plan A was basically like the best there was out there. And, oh, you're uh, just saying that. We know. No, I'm not. No. We know. We know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, you guys were just saying the stuff that uh, I've always been thinking about, but nobody's ever said, and I felt like too afraid to say myself. Um, and then I just, you know, made a few comments, like I think Oxford, and I started talking about movies, and now here I am. Yeah, and... As we said, we're, we're so happy to have you. And Ken, how did you end up here? Yeah, for me, it's similar. Uh, I just f- kind of stumbled upon the podcast, uh, I think, through social media. And uh, I think what's unique is uh, you guys really kind of go into topics that might be a little controversial or um, kind of a little, a little bit deeper than kind of the the other content that I was looking for. And so... Uh, it really resonated with me. I think some of the topics uh, you're able to articulate uh, things that I was thinking really well. Um, and so I kind of got in contact and it was really cool to be able to participate in this uh, podcast. Thanks. Um, Jess, I don't know about you, but I just like, I mean, I, w- I want our podcast to be like this where you just have a very, um, just like, like, Oh, when I say everyday people, I don't mean that in a condescending way. But, you know, like a lot of other Asian American podcasts, they always have, um, you know, like semi-celebrity types. And they're always like, oh, look at this. I'm a bad Asian or I'm breaking stereotypes. And it's, it's always uh, about that. But we never really hear from real people. And so, yeah, I just want this to be the podcast of the people. So, Jess, what do you think? I feel like I have to agree there. Um, no, uh, it's no, that's you're, yeah, I have you're, a gun right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, no, you're absolutely correct. I mean, one of the most, uh, like heartening things about doing this podcast is seeing the reactions to it. Um, and interesting enough, like even the negative reactions to plan A have been interesting as well. Um, as well as all of the positive support from people who come out of the, the woodwork to take a listen. Uh, by the way, I'm still surprised. Like every time someone's like, oh, that's, that was a great pod you guys did. I'm like, wow, you guys took an hour out of your day to listen to this. This is, this is, uh, this is surreal to me. But, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's been really telling, like being able to meet, uh, new people, interesting people. I think, the supporters tell us a lot about who we are, right? And uh, I think it's uh, it's been really motivating to hear the kind of conversations that have come up from uh, the stuff we we chat about. As a regular person, <laughs> I think yeah, it's it's a uh, really thought provoking some of the stuff. Uh, even though maybe you guys might not think of it at the time, but uh, I think it really is pushing some of the conversation out in the real world. At least uh, 
in my personal life, I felt it for sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, listeners, I promise you, I didn't like cordon off the sections, like get everyone to, you know, praise ourselves. This just happened <laughs> this way. Um, but before we get uh, started to the pod, I just want to tell a little story, something that happened to me a few weeks ago. Um, so I, I'm a big fan of this band called Churches. Uh, do you guys know of them? Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're like electronic. Uh, yeah, they're kind of like, they're like a synth pop band from Scotland. Uh, but I, I'm a really big fan of theirs and they had a concert in Philly. Cool. Uh, so my friend, a good friend of mine also lives in Philly and she's a really big fan of them too. So we bought tickets to go there. And I decided that this time would be the perfect time for me to uh, try Molly for the first time. Because uh, I thought it's going to be a concert. And I've been to concerts before, but, uh, you know, it, they're always a bit underwhelming in some way. Like everyone's just like not uh, singing along because they're all too busy taking, uh, you know, videos or pictures or, or whatever. We're too far away. So I thought this is a smaller venue. Everyone's going to be into it. And it's going to be so cool, uh, you know, being, being on drugs. Um, so I went there and I did it. Long story short, um, I didn't feel anything. <laughs> um, I think I took too little. And the only thing I really felt was I got a little sweaty and um, my mouth felt dry. So I, I drank some water. <laughs> um, and I felt maybe a little bit high for about five minutes. It's kind of like general like high you might feel when, when you're on like pot, you know, this kind of like uh, warm body sensation. But yeah, by the time the band actually started playing, I was perfectly sober. But the the, the good thing is I, I that was the best concert I've ever been to. I, I had like such a good time. And a part of me wonders if, if maybe there's like a little bit of Molly working in the background to lift my spirits up. Did you uh, feel I can't really tell, extra but I, love for churches? <laughs> uh, but I feel like, like you would know if you were if you were high on something. And I definitely no. felt sober. No, the first time oh, no? the first time I did Molly, I felt nothing. I was at a rave and the person I was with who gave me the Molly was like, dude, you're so high. You've been dancing for like four hours straight. <laughs> uh, so I, I guess we'll never know. But next time I'll just like, I'll, I'll just tell my friend who who sold it to me like double the dosage or something because I didn't feel anything. <laughs> Escape from plan A. Sheree, explain this red light. I'm sorry. I have a no dating Asian policy as well. I don't want to be mistaken as your like, brother and sister if you get awkward. Oh. Oh my gosh. What is it? Is this a thing? Because I'm Asian, I'm Is this a thing? Does this happen though? All the time? Is this a regular occurrence? For me? Yeah. Yeah. Several articles also single out a moment where Rice Gum and M2K pressure a Chinese man to finish a half eaten ice cream bar, calling it a kind of bullying. Eat this for my friend. Please, please, please. For you. Good. Thank you. Eat it, eat it. I'm, I'm, I'm. Yeah. Mr. Chow. Leslie Chow. Oh, yeah, okay. Oh, I take him back. Uh, right after you suck on these little Chinese nuts! So when I have kids, they're gonna be really weird looking because they're gonna be half Asian and half regular. And people are always like, you don't like Asian guys? I'm like, no, I like regular people. Hi, welcome to the latest episode of Escape from Plan A. As I said, I'm your host, Oxford, here with Jess, Diana, and Ken. And uh, before we get to describing what our episode tonight is, I just wanted to take care of some things first. If you like us, please go on iTunes and rate us five stars. And if you really like us, leave a very nice comment. We love 
reading them over and over and over again. We love compliments. So uh, please do that. That's the best way you can show your appreciation to us. We don't want your money right now, at least. <laughs> uh, please go and rate us. Um, okay, so jumping into this episode, uh, this one is a really good topic. So what is internalized racism? And we want to talk about it because it, when our, it, especially online, this accusation gets thrown around a lot. And at this point, I think it's become just, just a buzzword that nobody really knows what it means. It, it, it's thrown around because it's very, um, it's like a painful accusation, but it, it's so big and broad that I think we really have to um, really unpack it to, to figure out what exactly we're trying to say. Because at this point, it doesn't mean anything. Okay, uh, one of you provided a more clinical description. Uh, does anybody want to describe it? Uh, yeah, so there's a definition in an article by Karen Pike, uh, who's uh, done some research on Asian Americans, I think. So, And she describes it as uh, internalized racial oppression defined as the individual inculcation of the racist stereotypes, values, images, and ideologies perpetuated by the white dominant society about one's racial group, leading to feelings of self-doubt, disgust and disrespect for one's race and or oneself. And so, yeah, I think this is a kind of an academically uh, framed term. But I think, in my opinion, the term is quite simple in terms of what you're internalizing. Um, you're internalizing kind of how Asians are, at least in our case, um, how Asians are perceived in the white dominant society. And so a lot of that is through stereotypes, uh, media imagery, uh, interactions with greater society. And uh, those kind of ideas are often uh, not in a very positive way, uh, often in a very negative way. And also they have come from kind of a limited perspective. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's a really good description. But uh, my fear is always when you get to like academic, um, it, it becomes a little hard to understand and... I think uh, like people know it when they see it, like internalized racism. So I think maybe the best way just to kick things off is just talk about our personal experiences. So Diana, I know you had a lot to say about this. Uh, you want to take a stab at it? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut in there. Actually, um, if I could quickly, um, you mentioned Oxford. I think you you called you talked about something there that was interesting. You said we know it when we see it. Um, actually, one of my contentions with the the way internalized racism is used in uh, in common dialogue uh, is that we take we take behavior and ascribe internalized racism to it in a way that that veers into some some bad territory as far as what fostering and actually nurturing empathetic dialogue means it's more an it turns into an accusation in that case so i think there's a i think there is a clinical there is a line that we can draw between an action and the motivation and it's not like the two are necessarily inseparable in fact they're not uh, but in terms of how to talk about it, I think that's an important distinction to keep in mind. Okay. Uh, could you, like, uh, provide an example of what you're talking about? I, I think I know what you're talking about, but it, uh, for people who are not that familiar, that that might seem a bit too abstract. Uh, sure. So, um, let's see. So, the way, the way I've seen it used in uh, Asian online spaces is... Uh, 
is kind of as a retro to ascribe motivation to a beha- to a, a behavior that they see or that they think that they are seeing. Uh, most casually, um, it's leveraged at the phenomenon of you know WMAF, right? Broadly speaking, it's classed as a behavior that stems from on, on the on the part of the uh, the Asian woman um, as a result of various degrees of internalized racism, which manifests on the outside as this partner, this particular racialized uh, partnership. Uh, I, and I think it's also used particularly, uh, it, it can be used, I've seen it used uh, to describe motivations for, say, Asian American public figures, uh, you know, pr- particularly problematic ones, you know, uh, Esther Koo comes to mind that uh, the type of racialized humor that she engages in is a result of internalized racism on her part. Mm-hmm. So are, is your objection that uh, internalized racism is an extremely harsh term that uh, destroys any potential dialogue or that it's or is that maybe too unspecific and it gets confusing or what? I think it it's too unspecific uh and in a low in a way that's so emotionally uh loaded that it it shuts it tends to shut down dialogue. Uh I think there's a there, this is what I'm talking about in terms of the behavior and then and then talking about the motivations. Um unless any of us know Esther Koo, we don't actually know what's going through her head. Right? What we do know, however, is uh I mean her humor, right? The words she has said, yeah. the actions she has, uh, she has done, right? A lot of it is, let's, it's racist, right? So her actions are racist. And I think it's, it's very fruitful to call out the racism of the action. Uh, but then, uh, then going past that and then leveraging internalized racism as almost an accusation oh, I see. So- against her, I think that's, uh, that uh, that that gets into that gets into some troubling uh waters. I see. So I think you are trying to distinguish between like actions and character. Like you can condemn the actions, yeah. but let's not go like psychoanalyzing through a computer screen various people because that can get really um you can create yeah. some And it closes down dialogue. If we're talking about a stranger and let's say if, if on the instances when uh I do see interactions, you know, people do call other people, you know, um, they they say that these people uh, are expressing internalized racism. That becomes the uh, the charge that this person has to answer for. Um, I actually uh, have a, quite a bit of sympathy for people who who get that uh, because I don't. As a person, I'm not so sure how I would be able to uh, to address that in a way that both protects uh, my uh, my psyche in a way that doesn't. I mean, I'm not gonna. I'm not just gonna expose. You know deep, vulnerable thoughts to a potentially hostile audience, it creates defensiveness by its very nature. So I'm not, aside from whether it's correct or not, or ethical or or anything, um, maybe these actions are a result of internalized racism. As a broad, as a broad term, it seems highly likely that uh, we all experience this phenomenon and it manifests in how we behave on a day-to-day basis. That's, that's to me, is fine to say. But saying you are are displaying internalized racism, I don't know where the conversation goes from there in a way that isn't, no, fuck you. <laughs> I think another problem is also um, there can be different um, interpretations of what uh, internalized racism is. I, I want to get more into this uh, later and give uh, Diana and Ken 
a, a chance to just like tell their stories. But I think one concept of internalized racism, the most literal literal interpretation of it is, I hate myself because I'm Asian and I'm just a miserable, like suicidal person. And uh, that's like one definition. I think another is one that involves a kind of like separation, um, self separation. It's like um, I don't hate myself, but it's because I'm not like uh, most Asian. So you you kind of play this game of hot potato in which you do ex- internalize all the uh, racism, but then you pass it off to somebody else within the group and say me and maybe some other people I also identify with within the Asian sub uh, group. Uh, are exempt from that. And I think um, th- there can be some confusion. Right. But yeah. we'll delve more into that later. Um, uh, uh, Diana, you, uh, as I said before, you had some things you wanted to say. So I'm, I'm very eager to hear about your your side. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just want to s- respond to, you know, what you and Jess were saying also. Like, when you say, I know it when I see it, that's kind of like, you know, as a victim of racism, what racism looks like. And therefore, like, you know, the racist action, you know, that the person is taking. And that's kind of the same with just like racism in general, like a white person doing something racist isn't necessarily intending that action to be racist, but it doesn't mean it, the consequence isn't racist. So it kind of like depends first on what your definition of racism is. And second, kind of like, it's a problem with like the pejorative use of the term. It's kind of like it's thrown around as if, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know, like a hot potato <laughs> of like blame, you know, of like it's like thrown as like a weapon to accuse somebody else of self-hatred when it's not necessarily that for them. But the action could still be, you know, um the same whether whether they're intending it to be racist or not and the thing is like when we talk about racism from other groups we'll say okay but it's the consequences that are more important in the intentions you know like when you say when you when you hit somebody accidentally on the street and somebody goes ow you hit me like nobody says oh like well i didn't intend to do that so it doesn't matter you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. you just say sorry and then move on but you know that's not the case with these these other issues yeah that's an important point and it goes back to when it comes to these actions intention actually doesn't matter in a lot of these situations Mm -hmm. if the action is racist it it doesn't matter what the motivation of the person is um you can call it out for what that you can call that behavior out or that manifestation of uh of you know bias and prejudice hate all of that um it's it's when and then when you start to push that envelope deeper into almost demanding uh, a psychoanalysis of this person, or that this person in, like spill their guts uh, for an audience approval. Um, that's where that's where I feel uh, I draw the line in how it, the concept of internalized racism gets should yeah. be used. It's like demanding dialogue. performative wokeness. Yeah, it, it turns into more of a purity test for the people leveraging uh, the term than it is for, uh, for say, the person being accused of it. Um, and I'd just like to take a second to, to point out just how ludicrous as an accusation it actually is. 
I mean, literally, it's when it comes down to it, it's saying, you hate yourself. Oh, my God, you're a disgusting right. person. Like, like, if you think about that carefully, it's not a line of questioning that is designed to be productive. If, if that's, if you, if you do suspect this person actually does loathe who they are as a person, I feel like if you're interested in actually a productive, empathetic, uh, engagement with this person, you're not, you're not, uh, you wouldn't respond with that kind of hostility, mm -hmm. I would think. Yeah. Uh, if, if what you're going for is an actual, uh, dialogue with this person. So the tone of the, the way this, this word is leveraged, um, also makes me think this isn't, uh, it's not, it's just not appropriate. Right. It feels like um, the person saying that about another person is like using that as a weapon to hurt that person because they've been hurt by this racist action, which I feel like that just right. makes me think that like internalized racism as a concept isn't really even useful socially or in dialogue. It's more just like an, uh, an idea that like is academically useful because there's such like cultural and cognitive dissonance. Um, like people just don't understand how somebody could have racist views of like their, their own culture or their own ethnicity or like have self hating views of themselves. So it's like, it's, it's useful to describe, but it's not useful to diagnose. I think a big part of why it's not useful is because it's been weaponized in that way. But like like Jess said, if you look at a lot of these behaviors and a lot of things we see in actions that are racist, I mean, if you trace it back down, I think a lot of the reason uh, these these things are perpetuated is because of internalized racism. So I think if you could bring the word into a context where it's not used hostile, uh, I think it could be very productive. See, there's this inherent contradiction in, in the usage of the word itself, because uh, Jess, both uh, you and Diana, uh, oh, Jess, you said that it's an accusation of like, you hate yourself. And then uh, Diana, you uh, expressed like uh, the kind of convoluted idea of how you can hate your own like race. Uh, but the reason I think people, um, what they really mean, uh, like let's just take like, like the whole WMAF um Thing, uh, as an example, when say like an Asian guy says this to a, an Asian woman, what he's really saying is you hate Asian men and you don't even consider yourself a part of the same group. So it's actually not. It, well, they, I think they use the term internalized racism because like conceptually we're all Asian. So uh, when you try to explain to someone else how can like an Asian woman hate an Asian man because of his race, it, it doesn't make sense. So they say, well, it's like racism is when like a person of another race. Uh, hates another uh, person of another race. So they're like, well, you're both Asian, so I guess that doesn't work. So I I'll just cling to this word called internalized racism. But the actual allegation being thrown is that you think you're better than us. You don't think we're even part of the same group. You think you're part of a higher caste. And I think that's where the, the confusion comes from. I, I don't think a lot of these people l really think that the people they're accusing of actually hate themselves. They actually hate them, like the others that they are perceived to think they're above. What do you guys think? Right, that's true. Yeah, because if somebody is actually self-hating, that's just like lack of self-esteem. Yeah, they just be some mopey person who just like, you know, slits their wrists or, or something. Like something like 
like truly um, like pitiable. Like you, you can't really get mad at someone like that, right? Who would get mad at, at like a depressed, suicidal person, right? Uh, so what internalized racism really means is, oh, you think you're better than me. That's what's really being said. That makes a lot of sense, in, um, given how the term is commonly leveraged uh, in a lot of discussions. It is a tool to express pity uh, or condescension towards this, uh, towards this, whoever is being accused of exp- of displaying internalized racism. So I do think it's a distancing mechanism. Oh, so, so I'm saying the accuser is expressing contempt at perceived condescension from the person he is accusing. Yeah. Right. So we're on the same page? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I, I don't like the term that much anymore because it, it it's it's uh, gets misinterpreted. Nobody really knows what they're talking about. It'd be better if people... It's also a very like academic term that I would think like a therapist might use than... You know, in every day, especially like Twitterese, it, it's it's no good. It's not very clear. That's that's my problem with it. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's very useful as an analytical con- as a conceptual uh, uh, framework to for you know trained professionals or other academics to explore in 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 rigorous research or in in a you know in a therapeutic practice. Uh, I don't think it's a it's a concept with much utility for day to day interactions. Um, certainly not uh, across large distributed like social media networks or the kind of human interactions that we engage in on these giant platforms. It's just not. It's just not. It's a too. It's too intimate a concept to be viable to discuss uh, that openly uh, to that many people. So as a concept, I do like that it's out there. I think it's a valid framework. I don't think there's anything conceptually that I disagree with about the concept. It's, it certainly uh, rings true to me. Um, it's it's just, uh, um, I mean, it, it, for this one, I just see such a distinction between how it can be true at like a macro level and how it can be dangerous to apply at the micro level. Yeah, I level. was on this, I think it was uh, Asian 2X, the subreddit, I was just like, you know, um, lurking like I do on Reddit. And I saw this one poster who I assume is an Asian woman say that internalized racism is a made up concept uh, created by like Asian guys to hurl at Asian women. When you see something like that, you realize that the whole concept has has just become meaningless because uh, obviously internalized racism <laughs> as a like, as a like a, like a psychological concept is obviously true. It exists. Um, but now it's, it's become a highly genderized, um, concept that has become muted and mut- mutated into this thing. Right. It, that, that, that message is demonstrably not <laughs> true. I mean, a f- Asian female professor coined it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I see that as a defensive mechanism. But, yeah, well, um, I yeah, think, go yeah, ahead, Ken. it's definitely been used more as an insult to hurl towards Asian women. Um, but I think it gets lost in that uh, Asian men definitely experience internalized racism as well. I think that gets lost in the conversation entirely. Um, but it manifests itself in less obvious ways, less visible ways. Exactly. Yeah, that's so a really good point. I think a lot of Asian guys growing up, they become kind of withdrawn a little bit, a little self-abasing. Um, and that kind of perpetuates the stereotypes as well. Um, but in a way that isn't, super visible um, if you're not looking at it. And so I think that gets lost, um, especially in this kind of genderized 
environment um, as far as uh, defining the term. Yeah, actually, that's where that, that's like where I want to take the discussion next. The the difference between um, what is like popularly conceived as like an Asian woman with internalized racism and, and an Asian man with an internalized racism. And, and, and I think logically you would think that they're, they'd be similar, right? Oh, they just, you know, want to fit in with white people. They just want to like, you know, date and marry white people. They love white culture, embarrassed about Asian-ness, whatever. But it, as, as Ken said, it's actually not true. The, the way they manifest themselves are quite different. Um, what do you, have you guys noticed that? Uh, in terms of how, um, uh, internalized notions of race like like play out between yeah like, men for instance and women. like in, in Hollywood terms what's the most like stereotypical uh, Asian male uh, internalized racism form well who's like the first name that comes to mind like Ken Jong exactly it's it's Ken Jong right um, whereas <laughs> whereas the Asian female equivalent won't be like his equivalent which will be like some um, I guess like a Margaret Cho type character. No, it's like usually the, the Asian woman with internalized racism is usually somebody who's like very attractive, uh, uh, is, has v- various social qualities that, that make her desirable as a woman in kind of like white society. But the Asian male equivalent is not like that. The Asian male internalized racism guy is not like Godfrey Gao who only wants to like fuck blondes. That's not, that's not a Chan really. The, the Chan is, is a Ken Jong, is like a William Hung. He's the clown. He's the guy who, who, uh, you know, willfully debases himself just so that he can be like the, the lowest man on the totem pole in, in like white society. And I, I think that's quite interesting that you don't see the same manifestation of internalized racism. I think that, uh, like, Asian women debase Asian men, and Asian men debase themselves. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, and, and I find it very sad. Um, yeah, but yeah, continue, please. That is really sad. Well, I think that's largely because of what we're internalizing, right? Which is, like, back to the definition, like, the stereotypes and whatever media is kind of pushing uh, on us about ourselves. And so we take that as kind of truth as we grow up and that meshes into our like personality and our worldview. And so um, just kind of based on those very like superficial stereotypes, right? Like the men are pretty clearly debased um, while the women, um, it's not necessarily so clear as to that. Um, and so- Well, I think yeah. there's a dimension to it where there's still a certain social acceptability to an Asian woman being debased uh, as being Asian. Um, so I'm talking about portrayals. Yeah, that's of a good la- point too. Yeah, there's like portrayals of Asian women as you know uh, prostitutes. Uh, you know, you know all the all the usual stereotypes. I don't need to enumerate them uh, here, but uh, there is still a. a an accept a feminine acceptability to, to that kind of debasement that isn't available to men, uh, Asian men. I mean, regardless of ethnicity here, um, but but it, while we're talking about Asians, um, so I feel like portrayals of you know this. I would say that if we were talking about manifestations of you know an internalized racist outlook on on who they are in the public eye. 
uh, there's still some amount of glamour or social capital available to you as presenting, you know, in presenting yourself, an Asian woman, as, you know, a sex toy or, you know, some kind of shock, some kind of uh, uh, sexually charged figure. Like, Tila Tequila comes to mind as an example of that. Um, I feel like she and That's Ken Jeong would be, like, yeah. flip sides of the same coin here. Uh, they are both debased in their manifest in their public manifestations, but along very uh, along a gender script that we're all following as a society. Right, because I feel like Esther Koo, she has as many jokes about herself being a whore as she does about her dad being abusive. But it, it's like um, her her sluttiness can be veiled under the whole like third wave. Feminism yeah. and sex positivity. Yeah, this, the Amy Schumer. I mean, Amy Schumer rode this uh, wave to fame and undeserved glory. I think um, that whole <laughs> like the crass woman, <laughs> the crass, uh, you know, the raunchy kind of loser woman. Um, uh, I and I think uh, you know, there's a pitfall is if you are you know a person of color trying to. I mean, there is a social moment for this. For uh, you can tell from you know from women like Amy Schumer and how popular they are with you know with their demographics. There is a market for this kind of like like debased woman sort so to speak, and finding like some sort of empowerment from just being the antithesis to you know social expectations of womanhood. But when you bring race into that equation, um, it just takes on an additional charge uh that uh, i'm not that i'd like creators to be more aware of in their work um so you know like uh i i recently spent some time watching esther ku's comedy and i I, i'm conflicted there isn't that much available online i think um and i'm not sure if the what's available on youtube is truly representative of work or whatever so i'm totally leaving an asterisk there in case i'm wrong but uh the clips that i did see you know she there is a take on them that uh, puts her kind of in the same line of comedy uh, um, as like the Amy Schumers of the world, kind of doing this whole like almost Louis C.K. like being a gross person, but gross in a female way. And this this means talking about what a slut you are, what a giant, you know, how how much you're just a total fuck up in life. Uh, your family's terrible. You know, it's just trotting all of that out. And it reads so differently than if, say, a white woman does it uh, in a way that's inescapable. I think. Yeah. Yeah, it was the same issue with um, Chinese burn. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, I think for especially people of color, it's very hard to play that. Because um, I mean, you, do you guys watch Insecure? No. Mm-mm. That's the Issa yeah. Rae vehicle? Yeah, I mean, like I'm, I like the show in the in the sense that I I, I just find it interesting because like I don't watch a lot of shows by and like for black women, so in that sense, uh, I'm very interested in it. But the, the show's not particularly funny. It's not particularly like the characters aren't particularly interesting. Um, and I do wonder if if she had the kind of license to be be as like despicable as like Hannah Horvath on on Girls, you know, Lena Dunham show, uh, which I which I love. I think it's really interesting. Um, I, but I think she can't do that because a black woman being that selfish, that horrible would invite all sorts of like criticism. And I, I think the, a lot of the hate against Esther Koo is internalized racism. Yeah. And I, I think some like uh, a lot of the hate on Esther Koo is, is she, maybe she doesn't realize that 
you know, you're not white. You, if you like, if a white woman makes fun of like white men, you know, no, nobody cares. But when an Asian woman does that to Asian men, that has real consequences because so few people actually know real Asians. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to put that out there. I mean, it is a burden, That's right? True. I mean, on creatives. So Diana, I know you. I mean, uh, you do. You you're you're in comedy as well. Um, so I try to be mm-hmm. like, so I, you know, when looking at this, I try to be cognizant of that burden, right? It's, it absolutely is not fair that for create, and it is kind of a roadblock too, that for creators of color, uh, or from, you know, generally marginalized groups to be standing in front of an, off, an, an audience and, you know, performing, it's, it is unfair, uh, to have this additional burden. It's not just, is your material great? It's also, you know, carrying all of these other, like, pieces of baggage, right? And it's totally your call, yeah. Whether to whether you want to respect that or just say fuck it and do your own thing, um. So it's 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 just a fine line that I try to just keep in mind while I'm like, so I I just don't have it in me to uh to speculate on Esther Koo's like psychology in all of this. Uh, I can say that I was right. As humor, I mean, humor requires, you know, audience, you know, it has to strike a chord. I didn't find it all that funny because it, it, you know, rang so many, uh, so many, it just, it just threw up so many red flags for me that I just could not find it in myself to laugh at this woman. Whereas, you know, if it's say, you know, a white woman totally talking about how fucked up her life is, um, then, you know, I'd be, I'd be more willing to play along and be that supportive audience that she's playing to. And give her that, and and be yeah, give her that kind of validation. Um, at the same time, this isn't saying like I love Esther Kuhn, I totally defend her because we can separate the content from the creator in this sense. We can separate the action from the motivation. Uh, I don't think it was okay to drag, uh, you know, the like the way she. I'm sorry, this is turning into such an Esther Kuhn like moment. Um, but I think it's a, it's a fairly good, like, example of what we're trying to parse, I think. Um, she was probably, I hope, if she was cognizant of, you know, what kind of, like, when the audience laughs, and I know, notice it's a primarily, you know, white, predominantly male audience, from what I could see, laughing at these jokes. Um, I would like, if I ever had the chance to ask her, I would like to know, like, does, does she think they're laughing with her or at her? Right. Like, that's an important distinction here. Um, and I know in comedy, like, it's, you know, there's a lot of, you know, you put yourself out there to be laughed at, but there is an, an additional layer where they are laughing at you, but they're laughing also in support of you, right? After all, they did come and buy tickets to your show. They are there for you. They know who you are and what you stand for. So even if you're laying yourself out there as a total, you know, screw up, um, and they're laughing at that. There's still an element of support. Uh, I don't think her, she can count on that from her audience. I think they are very much laughing at her. Yeah. For this example, like, I mean, some of her jokes are really crude and like pretty clearly targeted, uh, towards like an Asian guy. And so I guess how could you like kind of parse that completely without calling out the internalized racism? Cause it seems like it's accusatory in her own sense. And so, and to like really confront the behavior, I don't think necessarily just saying that's racist is enough. Obviously, if you try to person it, like, like dissect her personality, um, that's not really fair either. But I feel like 
since it's done in such an accusatory way, um, I don't know. It, it there's there is like it seems like there's like no way to address it without um, kind of like see like rooting out the cause of it in a sense. Here's what I think would be more productive. Like like basically say articulate more uh, by what you mean uh, when you say internalized racism. So if you see someone like Esther Ku, the thing I would want to ask her is, uh, do you think you're better than Asian men? Um, you are obvious. We are obviously of the same race. Um, but why do you think you like? Do you think you're separated from us? And if so, why do you think like the fact that like white men might find you attractive makes you above us? And I think if you can articulate that, then you you get uh you get closer to what you really want to find out because. I think if people get a sense that there's an actual question that can be answered, as opposed to you're an internalized, you're a victim of internalized racism. Now show your penance. I, I think maybe that's what you're getting at, Jess. Like, th- there's no way, there's yeah. no resolution to that. But if you can right. form that into a question where it, you can even answer it in like yes or no, like do you think you're better than me or or the men of your own race? Um, I think that becomes much more clear what you're trying to accomplish by lobbying this. Uh, thing at someone else yeah from a from a like you know a logic perspective uh broaching the question you know confront why won't you confront your internalized racism um it presupposes an answer it presupposes a correct answer it doesn't set up a it's not conducive to actually i guess you would call that a leading question right um it it simply does not create a path to actually addressing it. I totally agree with you there, Oxford. Um, so going back to uh, your concern, Ken, you know, you're, you're bringing up how can we fully address this, right? And full addressing is a two-part, it's a two-way street. It, it requires, um, it requires the person in question and, you know, the people who are responding to them to both be participants in, in, uh, in getting, in getting a resolution to this problem. Um, the complicated thing about, he- about the topic of internalized racism is that it needs to be voluntary. Um, you need to voluntarily participate in this yeah, conversation for it to mean anything. Um, so in that sense, you know, there are, you know, there are beautiful examples, uh, really painful to read examples of people who do come forward and, you know, try and dig in their, you know, really dig deep in their psyche and, you know, they're, they confront something and they put it, put it out there. And I'm grateful to them for having that kind of courage and willingness to be able to share something that is by definition, you know, the most intimate thing that you, you know, you as a person have, right? You know, the thoughts and motivations inside your own head. Um, um, so just to close this out real quick, then it's, I, I appreciate those people for uh, being in a place where they felt ready to do that and willing to do so. And I feel as a community, we owe it to ourselves and to them to protect their ability to express themselves and not, you know, and not have it leverages, not weaponize that either. Like, oh, look, this person's totally, you know, calling out their own internalized racism, and I knew it. Um, you know, or or leveraging that against someone else, saying, like, this person was able to talk about it, why can't you? Like, uh, this is the tricky part. Like, if we were to confront, say, Nestor Koo or a Ken Jong out there, and then demand an account of their 
uh, internalized racism, would you even be able to trust whatever they said back? Or would it just be... No, but I... Yeah. So that's... I don't think that's necessary because there's, there's the part of, you know, like the internal complexities and what people are ready to confront within themselves. But then there's also just like the actions that are damaging to other people. Like... I don't even necessarily think of internalized racism as that different from regular racism. You know, it's like if racism is a form of abuse, then internalized racism is just like internalizing that abuse. And then if you're doing racist actions, you're just perpetuating that abuse onto others. Right. So it's like. So in that sense, it's racist. You know, it's not just forget about internalized racism. We can just talk about racism in that case, because your actions, whatever motivation is there, your actions were damaging. mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think we can call that out. And I think it's right to call that out because it's like whatever is going on within a person, you know, like, like we can feel empathy with the victim, but also call out if somebody is becoming a perpetrator. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, because like internalized racism presupposes that whoever has it feels uh, like in group uh, empathy with the person that he or she is perpetuating this internalized racism on. And if you just look at Asian Americans, let's say, um, uh, let's say second generation uh, Asian Americans who look down on fobs. I mean, technically, we're all Asian American, but we all know that there are um second gen people do that and vice versa too but i i think it's that the power dynamic is generally more that the the more americanized you are i think the more social power you have so in that sense we all know like america people oxford people of fob (laughs) no just kidding people of fob descent (laughs) um but we know that there are, you know, very Americanized Asians who would be like, oh, you know, those those dirty Chinese and like, well, you're Chinese yourself. Like, no, I'm American. You know, those types of people. We know they exist out there. Yeah. So for them, uh, it's not it is just racism. And I, I think we, let's not because I think when we think of internalized racism, again, this concept of the sad, like manic, depressive um, you know, like sad sack comes up and we want to kind of pity them. But a lot of times they actually don't think of themselves as part of the same group as the people they're inflicting this on. They actually think they're above them and we should treat them sometimes like the way we treat racists. Yeah, I think another thing is like it's for a long time, like we had like people saying like you can't be a a racist against Asians, uh, stuff like that. And so we're still, I think we're still figuring out how to like define racism as well as um, not downplaying racism, which is still a thing people do. And I think there's some frustration built up with that in that a lot of people in our community don't even recognize some of the behavior as racist. Yeah, I mean, some of the biggest, like, white apologists I know are first-generation Asians. Like my... like my Chinese relatives, they'll be more white apologists than anybody else I know. And I feel like, you know, that that's because they grew up with these internalized, like these like racial hierarchies, you know, like white supremacy is just like a concept that's like global now. It's not just like in America. It's just like people in, in China will think like, oh, you know, like, 
Chinese people are not as good as white people or like they'll, they'll shoot for, they'll aim for whiteness, but they don't have the same like self-confidence and self-hating issues as somebody who's like grown up around white people, but have been socialized to feel less than. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so here's a question I have, because I think, do you think it's good for Asian Americans to go public with their internalized racism? Because we see uh, this a lot, um, uh, whether it's, you know, Eddie Huang, uh, his whole book, Fresh Off the Boat, a lot of that was him hating his, like, Asian-ness, which is why he gravitated towards, like, hip-hop culture. Um, Jenny Zhang's essay, Far Away From Me, in Rookie Magazine, which she's basically says she loved yellow fever growing up because you know she wanted to be you know that girl in in that weezer song um that rivers cuomo uh uh has a fetish for um do, do you think that these uh like public confessions are good i don't know if public confession is good but i think for a guy like it definitely it's quite obvious that there's benefits in recognizing it and like improving yourself in a way um, to unpack some of that internalized racism. Because, I mean, you realize kind of what it's done to you and kind of like some of the effects it's had like growing up and like the way you treated others. And so I think for guys, it's quite, um, it's not easy by any means, but there's clear like benefit of trying to unpack it. Um, since Oh, wait, do you mean that there's a benefit in the person like making the confession or the people hearing it of hearing another guy doing it or hearing an Asian woman say it or all three? I think just hearing another guy say it okay. as well as kind of helps you open up as well. Um, Cause I think for a lot of guys we're like kind of internalized it to the point where we never want to talk about it since it's a little embarrassing um, from the surface. Um, but to kind of make it a topic that's, acceptable to talk about um i think opens up a lot of positive conversation in terms of um communicating things that we felt yeah yeah and you know i it, it, i kind of hate to say this because it, it, i guess it's a bit shallow but it also really helps when the, the guy saying it is like you know kind of like a you know good looking kind of guy um there, there's an actor uh, tim chu um he's like sort of famous he's on like silicon valley um i i first knew of him because remember that 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 fucking show, um, Two Broke Girls, and they had that horrible, uh, like, Asian male stereotype character on it. Do you guys know of this show? It was, like, some stupid CBS sitcom. I know of it, but I've never watched it. Oh, anyway, they had this, like, modern-day, like, Mr. Yunioshi-type character, uh, but I think they got so many complaints that by, like, second or third season, they had, like, this guest star, uh, of an Asian guy who's, like, actually, like, an attractive guy, and they got this actor named Tim Chu to play for, play him, and that's how I first heard of him, but, um, you know, very handsome guy. You know, I kind of a man crush on him. But he is actually like kind of like low key outspoken about this. You know, he's not like some big star, so he's not gonna get a huge platform. But like he tweets about it. He like kind of blogs about it uh, every now and then. And yeah, I think someone like him, because um, uh, I think a lot of guys do think it, it is really their fault, and and they don't want to talk about how, you know, the system might be rigged because then they'll be called whiners. So to see a guy like that talk about it, I think, I mean, ideally everyone should have equal influence, but hey, this is the society we live in. So, you know, I always appreciate it when someone like that speaks up. Yeah. 
I agree. I think it's good for um, Asians to hear about the kind of like stories of personal growth. I think that's like a, just just a humanizing experience, you know, just to hear about other Asians' lives, to hear about their own stories, like hear about them tell their stories the way that uh, they envision themselves instead of somebody else saying it for them. I think that's uh, really useful for men and women, definitely for me. I'm going to say it really depends on the audience, uh, This whoever is, is talking to, uh, for whoever is talking to about this. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I very much dislike uh, this kind of crass, you know, psychological uh, psyche porn thing that, that goes on in some liberal uh, circles where people do feel, you know, validated for dumping, you know, the gross, ugly details of their lives for consumption. Uh, if it's if it's written or, you know, if, if someone is talking about this or writing about this in that vein for a primarily, you know, white-tinted audience, I have a very big problem with that because this is just a performative... Uh, this is just performative art for them. Yeah, that just becomes tragedy porn. Yeah, and it for a woman it plays so well into what a a woman is supposed to be, and be very well with what an Asian woman is supposed to be. Uh, in the guise of you know, oh, we're humanizing Asian women. You know, they're fucked up too. They have all of these worries and anxieties too. They're just like us. Um, but that kind of gets that. That's not really the message that that is conveyed by that. Um, I f actually forget, uh, a few years ago, um, there was a piece that came out, I think it was in the New York Times, something big. It was the Atlantic or the New York Times, something, one of those big, uh, platforms. It was written by an Asian woman, and it got into some pretty, uh, she was very vulnerable in it, um, talking about, you know, feeling anxiety, you know, insecurity, inferiority, uh, in her majority white spaces, you know, growing up in, in the workplace. And then I remember reading that thinking, oh, um, well, that's, it's a good for her for being able to, able to write that, you know, uh, I want to like go in the comments later and make sure, you know, people aren't like abusing her or something, you know, uh, the way people do. I want to make sure that that, like her confession was protected. Um, I didn't think much of it until I got to work. And this is when I, um, it's a majority female, but majority white. Uh, work situation and uh, and I remember my boss sitting me down and then trying to have that talk with me like uh. she wanted to talk about like you know how I might be feeling inferior she wanted to reassure me uh. that it's nothing and it's like oh my god um yeah no not helping <laughs> not not helping at all like no I know I'm better than all y'all um but like I can't <laughs> you know what you know what this is basically you know that scene in Mean Girls when they're all uh, talking about like one thing they hate about themselves like oh you know I hate my love handles I hate my nose and then <laughs> that's that's basically what's happening here it's like this it's this like community um, kind of like initiation process in which everybody has to like give a little of themselves and here's a problem with doing it in front of mainly a white audience because like if you're doing that chances are uh, well first of all like the people who really need to hear it who are the Asians aren't hearing it um, and secondly, if you're doing that, you're probably not someone who really, like, is fully 
enmeshed in like Asian circles. So what you're probably yeah. doing is you're doing that to get their like pity and approval, and then that's gonna be it. You're gonna be like, okay, I'm cleansed, uh, I I've atoned, and now I can just go back to being my the exact same. Uh, you know, fucked up things I was doing, but now my conscience is clear. And I think that's that's the danger. I think with these confessionals is, is when people think that's all it takes. I just need to, uh, you know, write an op-ed in some like stupid, you know, online publication, and and once I l- get this off my chest, I'm now free. It's like no, that's that's just the start. You know, <laughs> you gotta now build on it, and then um, and I th- I think at least if you're speaking to an Asian audience, you'll have feedback. It'll become a dialogue. It'll you know, there'll be a process, but when you're just doing it with a, you know, with a white audience and you, it's just like a one-time, one-off thing and it accomplishes absolutely nothing. In fact, probably makes things worse. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's so no good. Yeah, so overall, I respect that these people felt, uh, you know, if it's done in good faith, and of course, you know, we really don't, don't know one way or the other. If it's done in good faith and they're confronting something real and deep and honest and trying to, you know, if even if misguidedly you know legitimately in good faith trying to help um that's that's great for them uh, i'm not going to come down on that it's it's the after effects of that that uh that bother me that per- it just builds on white liberal condescension uh just by playing so well into an already like demeaned stereotype an archetype of who we are as people so in that sense, I really, I, I really don't like it. And I and I want to call out something here. In this, I think this is as good a place as any to bring this up. Um, I see a lot of calls. You know, a lot of on- Asian online conversation is around how uh, topics like these are suppressed or they aren't covered by big, you know, platforms. At the same time, saying you know these big platforms are trash and we need to and we need to go do something else. Uh, we ha- and there's there's a lot of there's a really dense rich communities of Asians online. Some of them, the largest ones, have you know uh, like hundreds of thousands of people and collectively probably reaches at least uh, several million of us um, here in the states and and um, and probably in the anglophone countries right that these platforms reach. Um, there's a lot of conversation that happens about on these topics. And again, like what you were saying, Oxford, primarily reaching out to an Asian majority audience. It's Asians talking for, to, and about other Asians. But I feel like collectively, the value of that is still, uh, is still considered lower than having an op-ed published about this in the New York Times. Um, oh yeah, for sure. But wait a minute, which so like they, they're just weird, like valuing of these same platforms that we're saying we need to move away from. Like it's not a fully like validated conversation until someone talks about it, you know, to millions of white people or something. Yeah, and we know by the, by the time it gets up to you know New York Times, it's like it's like a piece of meat that's been boiled for like ten hours. All the flavor's gone. Like you don't want to eat that anymore. Um, but wait a minute, what like massive Asian American platform are you talking about? Are you talking about Next Shark? I can't uh, think like of anything that's. Um, if we're talking like collectively across like Reddit, Facebook, you know, um, uh, big you know social media platforms, collectively they reach millions of people. 
Oh, you're talking about like the greater constellation of various. Yeah, not not any specific uh, one uh, necessarily. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. But there are you know intimate conversations uh, and also large you know large conversations that happen on these platforms uh, that are to and for other Asians. So what we're talking about, like when we're talking about the split between talking to a white audience versus an Asian audience, I think this is about where you can make that split. Um, but collectively, there seems to be a sense that, that that communication, that level of dialogue, is still uh, devalued in comparison to having an article written about it in, like, the New York Times or something. Um, like, people were talking, like, oh, I never read the New York Times anymore. It's just garbage. You know, it's all racist. They're all racist pieces of shit over there. You can't trust anything they say. <laughs> someone writes someone writes a, an op-ed about, you know, in, their internalized racism. Like, oh, my God, guys, the New York Times wrote about this. We've made it. And it's like, like, those two sentiments don't quite square with each other, buddy. So, like, we either want that kind of white validation for this or we don't. There is no middle ground to this. And my my sentiment on this is uh, maybe this is this is my own perspective. I would like to keep this, you know, as an Asian conversation. There really is no need to expose uh, to expose the ugliness of. Well, I mean, I'm I, okay. I'm torn on that. Whatever. I most of the ground, you know, the groundwork for this has to be done with Asians talking to other Asians not performing some racialized confessional for, you know, a majority white audience. I don't think that gets yeah. us anywhere. Or I think even worse is when you basically enlist your white mercenaries um, to to strong arm the the like Asian opposition. That is I think a real low uh when when yeah. you see that happening. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And it's like, like, then you see, you see weird alliances form as a result of these, uh, these pieces that people, you know, uh, tussle over online. And then you get like a white woman coming in to talk, you know, talk shit on an Asian woman who's disagreeing with this Asian author and say like, how dare you, you know, erase her narrative and this is her truth. And, and it's like, lady, sit down. This is, this really <laughs> isn't your conversation. What gave, who wrote you that permission slip? Oh, right. The author did. The New York Times did. Um, like, this is just, uh, like, it's, it's gone out of control at that point. It's, it's no longer, it's no longer a controlled conversation. This is now a political, like, narrative that's being, you know, uh, uh, that, that different parties are pulling at. So I don't know where, I don't see how that actually benefits, say, you know, me in any way, except I got condescended to by my boss and my immediate peers, Oh, your 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 eyes and hair are actually really beautiful. You should learn to appreciate yeah, them. It's like you should never feel inferior here. Like I don't. You guys are dumb. <laughs> like what? I feel like the narrative for Asian women is always like some body dysmorphia issue, which is like totally irrelevant to me personally also. Yeah. It plays very well with an Asian stereotype of like the, the, the wilting, you know, flower, the shy, conservative, you know, like. The damsel you know. in distress that will just be yeah. saved if some white man loves her enough. Yeah. yeah. Or like or wants just, to fuck her enough, even. It's, it requires, like, 
Like, there's, I, I don't know how to, con- I, I won't even try to conceptualize it, but it, the narrative of this, like, anxious, you know, neurotic, uh, deeply insecure, fragile, wounded Asian woman is uh, just, this isn't breaking apart a stereotype, this is validating it, honestly. Um, so I just don't see how as a larger, like, as a larger narrative, I don't, I don't see the utility in, uh, constantly harping on the need for more women to confront this, um, uh, in a large, at, at, at scale, uh, the calls that I see, um, where people wa- claim that they want to see more Asian women talk about these things publicly to a big audience, you know, people with platforms just start like confessing. Um, the reason they want these people and influence to do that is primarily to get to see them, uh, to see them get kind of get taken down by that white audience. And, so and do you think that? There should be, I guess, kind of like a, you know, like some kind of like backroom channel where this talk can take place more privately. I would love that. Um, yeah. I would too, I but I mean, let's be real. Like, it's not, not going to happen for sure. It's just uh, maybe the most we could say is just keeping it for anyone who's listening. It, it's if you engage with these people on these platforms maybe um showing more empathy than what you would expect a white person to show at least i think at least that much solidarity uh we can ask for and this goes and this is this is a bilateral thing right i think women owe it to men and men owe it to women right um so this isn't some this isn't you know like a like a one i'm not going to be one-sided about this uh like we absolutely need to be cognizant of the fact that even if you don't see you know if if you're an asian man and you don't see asian women as you know one as part of your group or you're a woman who doesn't see asian men as part of your group you know it honestly doesn't fucking matter you are seen as one group really like there's no separating there's no real separation of the two here there's no meaningful separation so for all intents and purposes we need to act in some ways like one group yeah, at I least think that, when like, there are like, outsiders involved. Yeah, I think I don't. I don't think Asian men or anybody cares about what Asian women like. You know how they internalize racism or like the process that they go through to get over that. They just want the WMAF Asians to stop shitting on Asian men and themselves. So it's it's calling out racism. Yeah, in that case. So I think that's. I would go like one step further. I mean, yeah, definitely don't like, you know, don't like look down on us and stuff. But I think one other, I think, step that uh, goes one further and maybe a bit more contentious is that um, like leave some room for others, whether it's Asian men or like Asian women who aren't that like assimilated um, or aspire for that kind of thing. And I think then it becomes uh, a contest for the spotlight. And I think that's where a lot of the the fight comes from. Because I think, like, stop being nasty people is relatively uncontroversial. Um, but then when it's, like, when it's basically, like, telling those people, hey, you know, you have a certain, like, access to whiteness that we don't have, please recognize that and 
Yeah, it's it's a tough one because, in essence, uh, what it comes down to, uh, Oxford is asking women in these situations, in these circumstances, to check their privilege. Um, exactly, which um, is a which is a tough as hell proposition to make in in uh, in, in our current climate. Well, it's also to recognize like the racism, in a sense, right? I think that gets sometimes lost as well. Just recognize that some of these actions are racist and built on racist beliefs. But if you have that kind of denialism, uh, that conversation is impossible to have. And I think, yeah. It's kind of like defining a, a racial commons for for Asian American uh, presence in civil society. Um like knowing where the third rails are even is a way to, you know, mark demarcate, you know, what's acceptable and what's not to bring into the public sphere. Um so we're still in the early like we're still pretty early on in mapping out that uh in those uh, that boundary here. Um so talking about motivation isn't all that relevant to me at this point. At this point it's just, I don't care if you're a racist. Don't do racist things. And by the way, racist things are X, Y, Z, one, two, three here. We'll talk about, you know, and I'm not, I guess I could be taken out of context. Um, I don't actually mean to say, like, I don't care if you're a racist here. I do care. But as far as behavior, like, people, especially like, like Asians in the public, you know, creators, right? They will do things or say things um, that are offensive. Some of them will come back, you know, the ones who engage with the criticism and say, uh, oh, I had, I didn't mean that to be racist or, you know, I, I'm not a racist. So, you know, what's, what's going on here? Like all of that doesn't matter. You did a racist thing here. This is what you did. If you don't know, if you didn't know already, now, you know, this is just where you don't, you don't cross this line here. If you do, then, uh, a lot of people aren't going to be happy with, uh, what you do. And you can expect, uh, you can expect that people will not, you know, support your work. Don't count on their support while you do this. Uh, you no longer have the excuse of ignorance at this point. Um, so we're still kind of mapping that out, I think. Sure. So, yeah, that's a good point, Jess. Um, I think there is motivation to talk about this kind of stuff in a constructive way. Um, just to kind of set, like, a template that it can be done, um, because it's been kind of dra- like the term back to the term internalized racism it's been dragged into like this territory where it's completely used as an insult um so i don't think it's completely necessary to avoid it completely but if you can manage to talk to it with like a friend or someone like that in a, in a way that's um not like asking for pity but just kind of sharing your experience i think it's really beneficial because it opens up a lot of suppressed dialogue um, and gives us kind of room to work from there. Totally agree with you. Um, I mean, ever since learning about Karen Pike's work and, you know, the academic work on internalized racism, you know, I've talked about it with friends, you know, and it's actually sparked really good conversations. But again, you know, because we have that personal connection, you know, we're, we know, you know, we're, we're supportive and empathetic and we're going to be there. So, you know, it's safe to be vulnerable and, you know, and, and reveal, you know, some sometimes ugly stuff. Um, 
So I think that's the sphere in which this uh, this notion is very, very helpful, like you said. Um, and I would encourage people to uh, to learn about it, to read it, and then and then see, you know, where conversation with, you know, family and friends takes you. I just, I, I'm just a little hesitant to then, you know, start swinging it at people on, say, Twitter or Facebook or, or something. Yeah, I think this is a good uh, place to just ask for final thoughts on... Uh, what people can take away from our discussion. So, Diana, do you want to go first? Um, well, I think some people don't necessarily have family or friends that they can talk to about this. If that's the case, make a comment to Plan A. Talk to Oxford. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk to you. <laughs> We're nice. <laughs> um, I would say, uh, I'll just repeat what I've said a few times in this episode. Try not to use internalized racism as a crutch, like a like a talking point, like some like cheap suit politician on on a, you know CNN just repeating the same stuff. Try to really uh, figure out what you're trying to say, and um, and if you're gonna well not accuse, accuse is, is heavy. If you if you're not gonna tell someone, hey, I think you're doing this, um, do it in a way where where that person can actually respond to a question without essentially being asked um you've committed a crime uh i've i've sentenced you now perform your sentence uh because there's really no uh good resolution to that so just like just figure out what you're really trying to say and just and just say it um as long as obviously you're not like swearing or or something but uh just be articulate yeah i think it's uh important if you want to talk about internalized racism racism to really kind of confront it in your own life first um because it's a very deep subject it kind of blends into uh your personality your character um and it affects everyone i don't think it's uh, localized to specific demographics and so i think once you kind of confront it you'll realize how kind of uncomfortable it is um and you have like more empathy when you do try to approach it and in like a positive way and jess why don't you close us off so in talking about internalized racism, uh, I'm I totally agree with you, Ken. It's it's a thing that you have to con- if you want, if it's it's a thing you have to grapple with yourself before you can really uh, start to think about grappling uh, with it uh, with other people. Um, and it's 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 actually a scary topic to really to really truly sit down and contemplate. Uh, because it really does cut into the very heart of you know how we see ourselves. It cuts across you know identity, you know, how just your conceptualization of your of yourself as a as a person and as a member of society uh, is affected could be affected by this. So I think knowing the how uh, how heavy a topic this is, um, hopefully will guide uh the way it's used uh in popular discourse i would just like to see a little bit more uh legit empathy uh being shown uh and again going back just going back to being able to separate action from motivation i think we're still at the point where uh we're 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 defining actions here um and talking about motivation i think it it can it definitely has value uh and I would like to see that happen more, uh, but in a in a in a positive, productive way. I think uh, in terms of 
grappling with it personally, you know, like it can also manifest in ways that have nothing to do with how you feel, view Asians, like Asian men, Asian women. Like for me, it comes in, it just like heightens all my existing anxieties about things that are completely unrelated to ethnicity or race or anything. Like it just comes up as imposter syndrome and like attachment issues. And it's like stuff that I'm, you know, still constantly managing like on a daily basis, but it has nothing to do with the actions that I take or like the views that I express about Asians in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we all had a lot of like personal stories we wanted to tell. Unfortunately, this episode became less about that, uh, but we can always record another one. And as we said, we're going to keep it on plan A for a primary Asian audience, so like, fuck you, New York Times, fuck you, BuzzFeed, we're not going <laughs> to do your performative <laughs> Asian monkey dance for you. Um, but yeah, let's, uh, we got we got more stuff to say about that. I mean, th- this topic is so broad, we can like do a, just a whole podcast, like actual podcast, it's called Internalized Racism, we can just do one every week, I bet. But um, I think, uh, you know, I really enjoyed this talk, I think we touched on a lot of things, and I'm really glad we ended with stuff people could do. We don't always do that. Sometimes we just end with like a dark somber note. So yeah, I'm glad. Yeah, shit's all uh, fucked up. All right, see you next week. Have a good week, guys. Yeah. yeah. So I hope, um, I hope people uh, can find some wisdom in, in what we said and, and take away from that and improve uh, the discussion uh, a bit more. So... Yeah, I mean, thanks for thanks for joining us. Um, had a great chat. So, thanks, guys. Hi, you just listened to the latest episode of Escape from Plan A on internalized racism. You were listening to me, Oxford, Jess, Diana, and Ken. And as I said in the beginning, if you like us, please go to iTunes and give us five stars. And if you really like us, leave us a comment. And I, I think we're, we're on SoundCloud, Google Play, and then a bunch of other host sites. So if you use those, whatever rating systems they have, give us the max. And if you want to read our articles, go to planamag.com. I mean, we've been up for a little over a year now, so we got a big backlog of articles. So you got a lot to read uh, if you're just catching up. So until next week, um, we'll catch you then. Bye, all. Thank you.